Hi again, and welcome to the Community Broadband Bits podcast, a production of the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. I'm Lisa Gonzalez. In this edition, we go to Kentucky and its state legislature. This past session, Kentuckians faced off with AT&T and its brainchild, Senate Bill 88. We reported on this piece of legislation in February as it was making its way through the legislature. The bill would have removed the carrier of last resort requirement throughout the state. The bill would have also eliminated the Public Service Commission's authority to hear and resolve consumer complaints. In short, the bill would have granted AT&T the ability to decide who receives a landline and the ability to walk away from landline service. Christopher talks with Mimi Pickering, director of Apple Shops Community Media Initiative, and Tom Fitzgerald, director of the Kentucky Resources Council. The two describe the bill in detail and tell us how a coalition of opponents defeated it. It's an interesting and inspiring story, and it reminds us about the power of organized constituents who succeed against political rhetoric and misinformation. Here's Chris, Mimi, and Tom. Thank you for tuning in to another Community Broadband Bits podcast. This is Chris Mitchell with the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, and today I'm joined by two folks from Kentucky, Mimi Pickering, the director of Apple Shop's Community Media Initiative. Welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. And Tom Fitzgerald, Director of the Kentucky Resources Council. Hello. And I would like to start, Mimi, can you tell us a little bit about about Apple Shop and your program there? Sure. Well, Apple Shop is uh, about 44, 45 years old, and we are um, a a not-for-profit media arts and education center located in the coal fields, and the apple the apple comes from Appalachia, not uh, the thing you eat or the thing you work on all day. And so we're really here um, telling stories of people from this region and, and training people to use media and arts and tell their own stories. And um, we have a radio station, community-run radio station that goes throughout eastern Kentucky and southwestern Virginia and a little bit of West Virginia. And we're really, um, really concerned about broadband policy, telecommunications issues, because we think they have the potential to really enable us to diversify our economy and, and do things that we can't do because we're in steep uh, mountain terrain with, you know, the lack of four-lane highways. Excellent. Thank you so much. And uh, Tom Fitzgerald, please yep. uh, let us know what the Kentucky Resources Council does. Sure. The Resources Council is a nonprofit, non-governmental organization. We are a legal and technical assistance provider. We do uh, assistance for folks who can't find or can't afford representation. We don't charge for what we do, and we don't take fee-generating cases. So we do, and we take no uh, government or corporate money. So it's an entirely unsustainable business model. Um, but we do, uh, you know, we do an, an array of, of, of issues dealing with uh, with environmental health, environmental justice. And we also do a lot of, of utility work on behalf of low-income and seniors and fixed-income folks. And so our, our involvement in the what we call lovingly the AT&T bill uh, stems from that, that standpoint. We often deal with, you know, at the intersection of poverty and environmental or utility injustice. 
you mentioned the AT&T bill, which is uh, the main thing I wanted to talk to both of you about. Uh, we had a, a show a few months ago where we talked with Harold Feld generally about this uh, movement by AT&T to try and deregulate its services, uh, trying to remove consumer protections under the guise of uh, demanding a change because of new technology. Uh, but I'm wondering if you can step back and if one of you wants to field a brief explanation of what this this bill that was introduced in the Kentucky State Legislature was aiming to do. Sure. I'll, I'll take the first shot at it, and, and Mimi can jump in and if I forget anything or miss anything. Um, the um, AT&T, uh, this is the second year that they have attempted uh, in Kentucky to complete the deregulation of, of phone service. Uh, back in 2006, uh, AT&T uh, uh, lobbied for and, and was successful in getting enacted a deregulation of everything in terms of telephony other than basic local exchange service. Uh, the representation of the sponsor of the bill was that basic local phone service, which is defined under state laws, 911, 411, operator assistance, interconnection, and free phones, uh, free, you know, um, unlimited dialing within the local area, and then operator assistance. That was remained protected, remained under the Public Service Commission uh, jurisdiction in terms of reliability. And, um, and there were commitments or promises made by AT&T that if they were freed from this onerous burden of having to be um, regulated for their other services, that there would be this significant amount of additional investment in jobs. And uh, there, there were these grandiose suggestions uh, by Connect Kentucky, which was a private-public partnership, that by 2007, there would be 100% broadband coverage across the entire Commonwealth of Kentucky. Well, um, fast forward to 2012 and then to 2013, AT&T comes in with a new bill that would complete deregulation. What it would have done under, under the, the auspices of Senate Bill 88 is for the three utilities that elected to deregulate, which are AT&T, Windstream, which is both an incumbent uh, and in some cases a, co a competitive uh, uh, local exchange carrier, and Cincinnati Bell, which is up in uh, the northern Kentucky area, the, if their bill had become law, no new customer would have the right to demand basic standalone service. The Public Service Commission would lose all jurisdiction over basic service uh, reliability in areas with over 5,000 households, the companies would no longer be required to offer standalone service even to existing companies, or, I mean existing customers. And in areas with less than 5,000, they could either go to the Public Service Commission and say there's a broadband provider here locally that's capable of providing voice service, or there's another unaffiliated provider that offers voice service uh, in the exchange. The third option they had, which is the one that they were most likely to use, is they could offer a, quote, alternative voice service, um, which would, um, uh, as part of a, uh, any arrangement, which means that they could say to existing customers, even in the smaller areas, we are no longer going to service your landlines, because that's consistent with where AT&T is going. They are essentially, as one person testified, a wireless company that bought, bought um, you know, Bell South. Um, what they will be doing is migrating rural and high-cost customers to their wireless home service and then making investments in the landline and fiber optics in the urban profit centers. So that's, 
That essentially is what they're doing, and this is consistent with what they're doing throughout the country within their service area, which is attempting in some respects to preempt what the SEC has been asked to do at the federal level, which is to sunset the publicly switched phone network and to eliminate net neutrality and to um, eliminate the obligation to allow competitive carriers to use their system. And Mimi, maybe you can tell me uh, why that's a problem. Why can't everyone just use their iPhone? Well, um, it's a real problem in lots of areas in Kentucky because we, um, although we may have cell phones, the service is very erratic. And I know, you know, AT&T and some of the other companies use use information that says, well, you know, 75% of households, I don't have the correct number, but a lot, you know, are using cell phones. But what they don't say is that, you know, we're also holding on to our landlines, um, such as my family does. You know, we, the um, cell phone, although there are two towers in Whitesburg where I live, which I can see out of my back window, um, the, the phone just doesn't ring. So um, I can't rely on it to get calls uh, when I'm home. And then there are all kinds of issues with 911 services and um, people who are on medical monitors, all kinds of things. Mimi, can you explain briefly what you mean? Um, I think the, the point about the medical monitors is really important, and I don't know that everyone understands why how this is interrelated. Can you push in a little bit on that? Sure, and, and um, I don't understand it completely. I mean, this one of the things in doing this, Tom has been so great in um, investigating and, and as well as other folks that have been involved in this loose coalition. You know, we've just learned so much together about everything that's connected. But people, um, you know, who are on heart, heart monitors, diabetes monitors, are different kinds of medical monitors. And and so they are, their, um, you know, their tests, their regular data goes out over landlines. And I, and I, Tom may be able to add more, but I understand it's not um, that the the devices have not yet been, you know, are not yet available everywhere to do this on a cell phone. And again, you would have the, you know, the irregularity. Um, we also, you know, lose power in this area, as uh, lots of areas of rural Kentucky do in storms. And you know, when you lose power, you lose your cell phone, whereas a landline, you still have it. So that, that's another reason um, that they're really important. Yeah, I think, I think that um, maybe hit a couple of points that, are, that I think are very important points. Part of the reportage that, uh, that Apple Shop did, um, which was so uh, significant, uh, is they did some investigative reporting on the issue and uh, discovered that uh, at the University of Kentucky, which is one of the uh, major university uh, medical centers in the state, they monitor a significant number of folks uh, remotely, and they do so uh, with an analog uh, system on the copper-wired network. And, and they are essentially using that system because of the high degree of reliability and functionality of the system, they are able to uh, to give these folks a remote a medical monitoring that is the equivalent of being in the office uh, uh, with them. And so in a state that has 120 counties and has numerous people who are not able to travel the significant distances that are necessary in order to, to get the medical attention, this is literally a lifeline. Um, and the problem, you know, the problem with, with 
saying to rural Kentucky, um, we are going to switch you out to our wireless home service rather than a wireline service, is that the wireless service is not, not only for medical monitoring, but for a number of other reasons, is not as functional. And so what you're basically asking most of you know, rural Kentucky, uh, particularly Appalachian Kentucky, uh, is we are going to, to uh, no longer service your highly reliable um, direct current supported uh, landline here, uh, and we are going to switch you out to a wireless home service as part of a package. So you're going to you want you to buy a package now because we're not making enough money on the on the uh, basic service, um, and then you go to the AT&T website and you read their legal disclaimer on their wireless home phone service, and I think it says it all. Um, they don't represent that the WHP, as they call it, is equivalent to landline service. Uh, they say that you may experience occasional service limitations, i.e., dropped calls. Um, we uh, recommend that you place it on a hard surface with an unobstructed view of the outdoors, so because you've got line of sight issues. 911 calls, it says, uh, we don't warrant that we will be able to find you if you make a 911 call because unless you've got GPS uh, system uh, in in many of these areas, uh, the 911 service is is done for cell service is done by triangulating among three towers and there aren't sufficient tower coverage to accurately identify. They say that the the wireless home service is compatible with home answering machines but may not support a fax machine, alarm services including medical alert services, dial-up internet, credit card machines, and is not compatible with, with um, uh, some tele uh, television services. So, you know, for, for many of the folks in rural Kentucky where there isn't effective competition from another carrier, what they're looking at is a degradation in the quality and reliability of the existing service. And I think that one of the things that we could probably emphasize as well is that one of the reasons that AT&T really, really wants to get people off the wireline and onto the wireless is so that they can hit them with more charges, they can charge them extra for more bandwidth that are being used beyond certain limits and, and just all kinds of other extraneous charges that are really going to hit people in, in rural Appalachia pretty hard, I would guess. That's right, and, and uh, a lot of folks either can't afford or don't want to be part of a, a large bundle. You know, they don't want a big cable package, uh, cable television package as part of their phone. You know, they don't need all these other services. And, and the, the landline and the carrier last resort, all of this um, legislation has provided a, a low-cost basic phone line that, that works fine for many folks. It also, um, you know, it, it's, it is... Um, there, there's a profit guaranteed for these carriers, so it's not like they're not losing money. It's sort of a matter of them wanting to make more money. So we just don't understand why we can't continue to have landlines as they are, pay for them. You know, they make some profit, and the, and then as they, if they will invest, um, and if we, you know, have competition, if we do have improved cell service, if we do have improved broadband, which everybody wants. Once it's there and it, and all these safety issues are addressed, um, well, then maybe it does make sense not to have the landline. But we're we're a long way from that, and you know, I mean, just you know, we're just leaving people literally in the dark, and um, you know, without noise, I guess you could say, or unable to speak, you know, it, potentially if you take these landlines away. 
something like uh, 20 states have already passed similar laws. I'm curious, how exactly were you able to stop it? Not just once, but but they knew that this was going to be a fight because you'd put together such a great coalition. Uh, you know, AA, AARP was involved, the uh, uh, the American Association of Retired People. Um, uh, how exactly were you able to stop Mighty AT and T and to to get them so upset that that one of their executives wrote a hilarious op-ed and, and <laughs> just totally over the top? For for your listeners, Chris, one of the things they need to be aware of is that while there have been a number of states that had in some fashion deregulated some aspect of telephony, not all of them have done the same thing. There are some states, Maine uh, being uh, one of the, the ones that I think is most exemplary, have really put the burden on the carriers to show that there's no need for them to be carriers of last resort in order that the goals of the Telecommunications Act that were you know, passed in the 30s and then reaffirmed in 1996 of universal access to affordable, reliable, safe service that interconnects uh, and competition, that those values will be maintained even in the absence of a regulatory oversight. And so you have other states like Florida that are kind of the Wild West when it comes to deregulation, and then you have a lot that are in between. The uh, National Regulatory Research Institute has written all these up, and it's a fantastic report explaining some of these nuances. So thank you for bringing that up. It is, and they're and they're apparently coming out with a new report this year. But the 2010-2012 report that they did is is an excellent summary, you know, and, and synopsis. What what happened, and and Mimi, from her perspective, can tell you, um, uh, because her uh, the groups that that she is working with, the rural broadband folks, um, really were very important um, partners in this process. We knew going into this session that uh, AT&T was going to throw everything that they, they could at it. They had they had hired over 30 lobbyists last year, and um, uh, what was different this time is that they hired a PR firm out of Louisville, which, um, which uh, funneled, uh, and I'm not sure if it was AT&T directly funneling or indirectly funneling, but funneled a significant amount of money into uh, a, a group called Citizens for a Digital Future, which is incorporated as a nonprofit in Atlanta, and is uh, AT&T is a part of it. Um, uh, the the you know they don't you don't break down the 990 forms don't break down who contributed what for the you know in the public file, but um, but uh, it, the digital, Citizens for a Digital Future opened a Kentucky chapter. Um, and uh, the person who was running that is a PR person for a firm called RunSwitch out of Louisville, uh, and they took a significant chunk of money and went out and did ads uh, on the uh, on the airways, uh, as well as having some proxies uh, write some fairly nasty columns about AARP having a conflict because they have. Uh, a, a cellular service that they offer to their members, which ironically goes through the AT&T system, um, and uh, so we knew that that there was going to be a lot of money thrown at this by AT&T. Um, and what we had uh, uh, is um, is a number of individuals who told some pretty compelling stories. We had a number of legislators in the House from rural Kentucky, and in particular Appalachian Kentucky, including the former Attorney General, who's now the Speaker of the House, who understand, you know, and a number of the, the legislators in the House, they understood that when the ice storm happened, 
that the only access people had uh, in terms of communications, because the power was out, was the landline system that had its own independent backup power. And they understood that people were not being uh, uh, hooked back up to their systems in a timely enough fashion unless and until they called the Public Service Commission and had them intervene. So, you know, it is um, it, it, the, the, probably the most difficult time we had was breaking down the, the effect of the bill. And because it is a complex uh, area, it is somewhat arcane in terms of uh, regulation. It spans, uh, you know, it spans a couple of different technologies. Um, but we, I, I think that, that um, the legislators, to their credit, in the House, and some of them in the Senate, understood that there may come a time where you can offer these essential services through another platform, whether it be a wireless or a wired uh, internet protocol platform, but we're not there yet. And, and before you switch out the publicly switched network and, and, and take it private, essentially, which is what AT&T has asked the FCC to allow them to do, we need to make sure that these consumer protections stay in place and that there is no erosion of these essential basic services, which are all that some people want, all that some people, many people, in the fourth poorest state in the nation can afford. And I think, uh, you know, there was a great coalition with uh, Fitz just doing a masterful job of uh, of explaining and, and researching what this legislation actually would mean. I, I mean, I just don't think the legislators uh, had any idea, particularly last year, you know, they just, well, it all just sounds like a good thing. Let's have better broadband, you know, let's have better Wi-Fi or wireless services. So um, in digging into it, um, he really could help these legislators understand what it really meant. And then also he wrote op-eds, other people wrote op-eds, and the um, the news media in Kentucky was really picked up this story and, and did their own, you know, investigating and presenting different points of view, which was really, really helpful getting the word out. And then, um, you know, citizen advocates such as ourselves and Kentuckians for the Commonwealth really kind of boiled it down to the simplest um, terms of this is what could happen. And I think people, citizens throughout the state really related to to that um, AARP did a good job on that also, and and there were union folks that were concerned uh, about it and spoke up. Um, CWA was involved, so it was a really good coalition. And I think that's you know that's a key um, to having these kinds of victories in other states as well. I think that's really true, and we, we did have some tremendous partners, and then we also had the uh, the uh, uh, the competitive local exchange carriers who rely on the quality of the landline system in order to offer competitive uh, options to customers. And they recognize um, that uh, that with the attempted switch uh, you know, and the deregulation that, that AT&T has asked the FCC to allow, that, that the ability to interconnect, which is one of the core principles of the Telecommunications Act, would be at risk. Um, and so, because AT&T has said, you know, they don't believe that when you go to an internet protocol that you need, that you have to allow interconnection. And so, it, it, was, uh, it was a great coalition, and, and I was privileged to be a, a, a part of it, um, but it really did take everybody. And so, this, this is replicable in other states. It's a matter of getting a broad base of folks who potentially stand to lose uh, 
by taking the the uh, telephony out of a regulated environment, um, and who are willing to uh, to work hard because you know they're up against a significant chunk of money. Uh, we had, I think, 24 lobbyists on AT&T's payroll this time. Plus, they had the state chamber of commerce, and um, uh, and a number of other folks that were that were attempting through campaign contributions, through charitable donations, and through. Uh, through uh, lobbying, uh, as well as uh, funneling money into indirect lobbying and robocalls, uh, uh, and you know they they uh, were trying their best. I understand that there was a um, a front group or, a, or another astroturf type group. Um, did was there was there something along those lines that happened? It was well, the, the, it was the Citizens for a Digital Future um, did the robocalling in and seemed to direct it into eastern Kentucky, where the um, House Speaker and the head of the committee that was hearing the bill in the House uh, both reside and represent. And I I got one of the calls. A lot of people I know um, around here got the calls. And and they were very um, they were very threatening. They were like, there are legislators in Louisville in the big cities that are trying to keep you from having good quality broadband. And cell service, you know, and, and actually named one of the legislators, which I think um, backfired because he was in leadership and got very <laughs> mad. <laughs> one of the ironies was they called all of us on our landlines. That's right. And, and of course, <laughs> there, there was that was the, the new wrinkle this time, is that you had, uh, you know, in Kentucky, lobbying, unfortunately, is only defined as direct contact with legislators. And, and that's a uh, the Legislative Ethics Commission has recommended that it be broadened in order to include advertising, and I certainly think it should. You know, we have we've reported any grassroots uh, money that we've spent on advocacy for years, and believe that everybody should. Um, what happened is is this uh, this group, this uh, Citizens for Digital Future, uh, did a bunch of the robocalling, and then there were also. Um, at least one legislator told me that, that there had been threats that they would start a 527 to go after uh, a super PAC to go after the legislators who were um, were impeding progress, and, it, and so the tactics uh, were very Rovian in nature. As in Karl Rove. You know that right. may work in D.C. It may work somewhere else, but it doesn't work here, and and it, it really did backfire. Uh, there were a number of very angry legislators who. Um, and, and Larry Clark, you know, called them out in committee and uh, and, and told them how how uh, little he appreciated those sorts of tactics. Um, I'm curious if you can offer some advice to to others who may be doing this. And in particular, uh, I, I'm not surprised that that you found legislators were were willing to listen and they were interested. Um, and I'm very glad that you had um, people who were able to take a very technical regulatory subject and and explain it. But at the same time, I'm, you know, there's there's a hundred legislators or more, and there's one of you. Uh, I'm curious if you can give a, a sense of how one can go about trying to have these one-on-one conversations at such a large scale. Well, I think I think that you there are a couple of things. One is is you don't try to do it yourself, and I think that as Mimi said, there was a broad coalition of folks. Uh, AARP was actually able to. Uh, to go toe to toe with with AT and T in terms of taking out some print ads, uh, and um, uh, we we were able to utilize the op eds, uh, and uh, there were um, 
uh, some new services that picked up the story, and uh, uh, we also had uh, WMMT, which is Apple Shop Station, doing radio coverage. So you rely on the publicly available media, uh, and you rely on uh, on you know Facebook and and other ways that you social media that are available, that are accessible, that are very affordable. Um, and you use your your existing networks. You build those links between. You know, we had a very strong link between labor and uh, and seniors because the uh, CWA, the communication workers, uh, they saw what happened with the promises that were made to them back in 2006 when everything else was deregulated and what they've seen is a degradation of, of landline uh, service and uh, and uh, uh, layoffs. And so it is, it's a matter of... Uh, of getting a broad base of uh, coalition and and there's lots of information out there that people can access uh Bruce Kushnick at the national level does some very good analytical work on what what uh, AT&T is up to uh you can get on the Federal Communications Commission website and read their petition and then read the petition from public knowledge and from some of the from NARIC the uh, uh, regula- uh regulatory commissioners um so that you can get up to speed on it fairly quickly. And, of course, the NRI study that you're going to do a link to, um, that'll give you the base that you need. And then um, there's always, you know, we're always available, and and I know AARP is, and I'm sure that the rural broadband uh, folks would be available to assist in any state uh, that's necessary in terms of, you know, attempting to assure that the legislative decisions are grounded in a full understanding and are grounded in in uh, in, in truth rather than rhetoric about about how we uh, uh, need to uh, update the telecommunications system and and there's going to be 14 billion dollars of investment and you're going to lose that on the investment if you don't do so. Um, so uh, you know it it uh, uh, it can be done. It just it takes a lot of uh, uh, it takes building those alliances, and um, uh, and it takes working all of those different uh, aspects of the issue in order to to uh, uh, to halt this kind of a juggernaut. And I do think you know these are issues that really affect consumers as well as as seniors, and so there are consumer advocates out there, and and you know in many places they're already um, pretty conscious of these issues, but they you know they really need to be to be um, notified and, you know, and get ready. And, and they've got a real job to do in, in protecting citizens in their states. Um, Kentucky, we also have a, a good statewide uh, grassroots group that does a lot of environmental policy work, but also um, economic justice. And so those folks, they lobby as citizens in Frankfurt. And, and we also our legislature does um, make it pretty easy to call and leave messages with a toll-free number, and so we encourage people to do that. And, you know, I think it still has some impact, um, at least on some legislators. And if they hear of enough constituents, which I think they did hear from a lot, um, particularly in rural areas, you know, they they know that these people vote, and, um, you know, occasionally they have to do the right thing. One of the other groups that people can contact that uh, that Fitz you mentioned was um, the uh, Rural Broadband Policy Group, which is uh, where Mimi, you and I originally met, um, and 
Uh, that's part of the uh, Rural Assembly, and so those are some some excellent people to get in touch with and uh, um, regarding right, and, these issues. And that, those folks are are you know well connected with the Washington D.C. the Beltway uh, policy people who were also very helpful. You know, there, there's a lot of expertise there and people that are really willing to share you know what they know um, with uh, those of us out in the states, and so that that's another great part of a coalition. Yeah, and the last part that I don't want to uh, to forget is is the competitive carriers who were running the risk of losing access to to reliable uh, access to their customers uh, also were very helpful, um, and, and because a lot of you know because uh, while this was billed as being a matter solely relating to retail service, it was in fact affecting wholesale service carrier to carrier issues and that was something that they understood and so I was and and we, you know while the the state public service commission was neutral uh on the issue because their view was that the legislature um uh, uh, makes the policy decisions and they implement those decisions um we were able to ground truth all of the analyses that I did by sending it over to staff there and saying, would you please look this over for accuracy? So, you know, we prize that accuracy because, uh, you know, this is not an area where you want to meet hyperbole with hyperbole. You want to let them rant all they want to, let them talk about the digital future and how uh, we're trying to hold them back and put little cute little pictures of rotary dial phones in the (laughs) papers and accuse us of wanting to chain everybody to a rotary dial phone. We'll stick to the facts. And, and make sure that we're accurate and make sure that the legislators understand what's behind all of the rhetoric. Um, you know, Chris, one thing that I, I haven't done yet, but we were thinking about doing, is you know, not wanting to be outdone by the uh, Citizens for a Digital Future. We were thinking of starting our own organization, uh, and I understand that from the Secretary of State's office that it has the, the name is available, and it's Citizens for More Than a Middle Digit in Eastern Kentucky's Future. <laughs> yes, I'm I'm not surprised that that is available. <laughs> yeah, it is it is a little long. I mean, we might have to shorten it a little bit, so. <laughs> well, at least you know what the graphic would exactly. be. Exactly. So. Exactly. That's terrific. <laughs> well, thank you so much for both coming on. I mean, I think this is terrific. It's a reminder of what can happen when we organize and we and we work really hard toward a, a necessary goal of preserving something that's so important for uh, the entire uh society. Sure. Well, thank thank you for having us. That was Mimi Pickering from Apple Shop and Tom Fitzgerald from the Kentucky Resources Council. We have detailed information about Senate Bill 88 and its defeat on muninetworks.org. Follow the Kentucky tag. Learn about Mimi Pickering's organization, the Apple Shop Arts and Education Center at appalshop.org. Tom Fitzgerald's organization, the Kentucky Resources Council, runs regular updates on legislation at kyrc.org. Send us your questions and comments. You can email us at podcast at muninetworks.org. Our handle on Twitter is at communitynets. This show was released on April 30, 2013. We want to thank Mount Carmel for their song, O Louisa, Slow Blues, licensed using Creative Commons. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>